Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is a special edition of the Ayn Rand Institute's podcast. We're coming live from our summer conference, OCON 2022, and Washington, D.C. Today we're going to be talking about the state of America's political culture, especially in light of the recent tumultuous events that we've witnessed and experienced and lived through in the past few years from January 6th to Trump to COVID. So where are we in terms of thinking about America's political culture? What are opinions about the direction we're headed? What are possibilities that people see on the horizon? And also a little bit of a reflection on the, of what we've experienced in the last few years. Did our panelists find it um, predictable? or were they surprised by the events of our recent past? So joining me today, I'm Ankar Gatte, I'm a senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. Joining me today are three friends of ARI, I'll put it that way, Greg Salmieri, Tara Smith, and Yaron Brook. Let's start off with uh, an event that I think was predictable in its, in its general form of a pandemic but not predictable that it, when it would happen and what it would, what it would be. But so start with COVID, and I'm interested in your reflections on, particularly not so much like the details of COVID, but what it reveals and what the response to COVID reveals to you about our political culture. And I mean, we're talking specifically about Americas, but I think it's worth thinking about America in the world. Um, so, and it's COVID, obviously, is a global pandemic. Uh, and who, Tara, you want to start off with some? Um, well, I think a lot of people have commented on this, but the readiness with which so many people, so many Americans, certainly among others, just sort of gave way to, okay, you tell us what to do, government, and we'll <laughs> do that. And we have to do that, and we have to play by the government's rules, and the relinquishing of some independent thinking. I mean, there were still independent thinkers and there were still a lot of wonderful businesses who came up with innovative ways of continuing to give their services and so on. But it was kind of stunning, just the, the ready, readiness to acquiesce. And I found this, not, you know, I think a lot of us would read stories about this, but I have to say the level of, I don't want to call it cowardice exactly, but even among colleagues, just sort of in my personal environment in Austin, people I knew personally and so on, I was surprised at how reticent so many were to do anything for two years, you know, like to, to get mm -hmm. anywhere, people in good health who didn't have other reasons, you know, they weren't living with somebody mm -hmm. who was very vulnerable. So that's a just, again, not in a particularly original, but it made an impression. One of the things that stood out to me during COVID, which might seem like it's on the opposite side of that cultural phenomenon, but I think it's part of one thing. And in general, the two sides of our political culture are not opposed to one another. They're part of a, uh, a mutually reinforcing system. Uh, is the anti-intellectuality of the response to um, the establishment and of the objections to, um, to lockdowns, to um, uh, all the things that were being um, <clears throat> that were the standard uh, the standard ruling, the amount of ridiculous conspiracy theories, um, the pretending that ivermectin is being suppressed, um, 
uh, the kinds of things that are really make-believe, um, and I think it's clear that they are make-believe, uh, and that this is what became, or, or even Trump's, you know, it's all going to go away, that kind of pretense at the beginning, that that is the caliber of the reaction to we're going to keep you all uh, under lockdown or quasi-lockdown for two years. Um, and so much of the reaction is of that, um, that character then makes people react against that and then, well, I don't want to be like that, so I'm going to, you know, really go by the book. And then other people say, you're, you know, such a coward and uh, going by the book and don't you have any fighting spirit or whatever and so let's pretend uh, on the other side. And that um, cycle I've, uh, I've been really troubled by. Yes, I, I, so I agree with all of that. I mean, I'd, I'd say two main things. <clears throat> One is, which shouldn't be a surprise, but, but it's still uh, shocking when you see it, is the complete and utter incompetence of the authorities and our governments and, and uh, the panic, the, the unthinking way in which they responded. Uh, so, so, you know, that's, that's one side. And, and uh, uh, the flip side, and the other side is, to follow up on what uh, both uh, Tara and Greg said, is the lack of any independent thinking. Everything was tribal. Uh, so uh, everybody, so if you wore masks, that represented a tribe. And if you didn't wear masks, that represented a tribe. And your view of ivermectin was, there was almost no independent thinking. And it was indeed uh, uh, stunning, the lack of ability to think. So people tried to explain their positions and had, had these ridiculous uh, explanations and excuses for the positions they were taking. Uh, people who are amateurs were quoting uh, medical science journals and had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, you know, even doctors who were pretending to be statisticians and statisticians who were pretending to be doctors. Across the spectrum, there were so few people who actually knew what they were talking about and actually had expertise and actually had the facts on this side, Amish being, I think, one of the few, of course, who, uh, who uh, were objective and, and, and could think about these issues. But, but there's just, it was just a, a desert out there, and it was really, really, really sad. And as a consequence, the conspiracy theories, the tribalism, mm -hmm. uh, and the, the unthinking following of orders and accepting uh, you know, what people, what they were told to do without questioning. Just add a word on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it was, I'll fall into my tribe. My tribe tells me what to think. I'm a progressive, therefore this is my attitude toward the person with the mask or without the mask. So there was a lot of this supposed to think thinking as opposed to genuinely thinking for yourself. No, no, I already know my political affiliation, so that tells me what to think in regard to this issue. And that just gives me the simplified grid of how to see things. So let me ask this, because one of the themes coming up is the unthinking response, conspiracies, um, tribes, but tribes is, you're sorting out, but this is what I'm supposed to believe and that's my tribe. How surprised were you by this? So uh, I can think of conspiracy coming on the scene politically with Obama and the birther smear. That that's the first time that it, that it had like life to it, that it, it's, it's debunked and yet it goes on and on and on and there's still people who I, I think subscribe to it. Then with both Trump and COVID, that I've been surprised. If you told me this many um, people in America are susceptible to these conspiracy, I call them the conspiracy fantasies, uh, 
I, I would have said no. It, it, the percentage that it seems, and of, the, of people I know, and people I would have thought, there's no way they're going to be e emailing me some conspiracy about COVID. Or so. I've been surprised slash shocked by it. And it's one of the things in terms of rethinking about the, where the state of American culture is, and is wider than politically, but it certainly plays out mm -hmm. politically. I've, like, I'm rethinking that and recalibrating my expectations based on it's much more prevalent than I would have guessed, whatever, six, seven years ago. But I'm interested in your so reactions. First, I actually to think that. it started earlier. It, it, it was 9-11. And, and while I don't think we noticed it as much, um, I think it was there. And, and remember, 9-11, there was no social media. So we didn't notice mm -hmm. it because it didn't get that viral spread and we didn't get it as much. But I still meet people now who, who bring up 9-11 conspiracy theories. Mm. But yes, I was, I, I was shocked by it. I mean, I, it definitely has colored my view of what is possible in America. And by the way, I'm going to be as pessimistic as I can <laughs> today so that I can be optimistic tomorrow. So uh, you'll have to forgive me. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely colored. It, it was shocking in how um, common it was. Uh, but it, it really, there was a real breakdown in trust of institutions, of, of, of experts, of authorities, and people were voting to kind of the basest, uh, most simplistic and tribal explanations they could come up with. But it was, yes, it, it, and I, but I think we know about it more because I think social media plays a big role here, right? It, it, 20 years ago, if there was a conspiracy theory, we wouldn't hear about it. So, you know, people would talk among each other, maybe it would spread a little bit. Now, if somebody has a new conspiracy theory, it's out there, and particularly if it's somebody influential, the virality of social media has a big role here in what's happened, I think, over the last, really over the last 10 years in American society. But I would say I think it has a big role not only in making us all more aware of what's out there, but it sort of empowers people yes. or emboldens people yes. to engage in it more and more themselves. So I think like both of you, what I was surprised by was the scale of the conspiracy thinking, or if not out and out conspiracy thinking, just really lack of independence and non-thinking and going along. It's the scale of it, the prevalence of it. Obviously there are pockets of resistance and so on, but, and this gets beyond COVID, but in a somewhat related vein, one of the things more generally about the culture that really worries me is the decline of respect for the rule of law. Now, I saw that coming, but I had, like, I've been talking about the rule of law for at least 10 years and so on. However, I had no idea how rapidly it would start to unravel in terms of people's respect for the rule of law and even for the idea of the rule of law. And I bring, bring that up here only as another example of things are happening more widely and more quickly in somewhat alarming ways, certainly, than I ever would have expected. Yeah, let me... And the thing that surprised me most in this progression was how well Trump did in the, the, um, in the primaries of, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, I guess, 20, uh, 2016. Um, once it was established that someone with that mentality could do that well, and forget how he did in the general, because then he's against Hillary Clinton, and there are lots of reasons to dislike her, but that um, he could do so well in the primaries with that mentality, and so many people getting more and more fervently in his corner, the more and more blatantly he um, 
behaved like a, a reality-hating whim worshiper, um, the clearer it was that we were in a really bad place, and if this could happen, God knows what could happen next. But in the somewhat defense of people who are susceptible to conspiracy theories, uh, I mean, Yaron said there's a lot of reasons to mistrust the establishment, and um, there are, and it goes back to uh, the response to 9-11, not just the, um, not any cover-ups about what happened on 9-11, but, oh, Islam's a religious peace, this has nothing to do with that, don't look over there, um, let's not think about any connection this might have to anything going on in the Islamic world, in, uh, in mosques, uh, whole bunches of things where you're supposed to not think about and there was a party line on, and obviously there was something to think about there. And when you shut off thinking and you make it disrespectful, to, uh, un dis unrespectable, to ask certain types of questions, um, that creates a space for um, things to fester. And then particularly when you have complicated scientific conclusions, you know, how fast is this virus going to spread? Does this drug work or not work? Um, uh, how was this election tallied? And the, you know, the things you have to know to understand about a field. And you have more and more reason to distrust the establishment that's telling you things, um, well then what do you do? You look for something else and if you are out of your depth epistemically in dealing with it, you look for whatever you can find, whoever seems trustworthy to you. It's scary what seems trustworthy to a lot of people, but nevertheless. And if you're somebody who has knowledge in a um, tangent field, um, you're almost compelled to try to expand it and apply it to, uh, to these other issues. Uh, you talk about the doctors who aren't statisticians, the statisticians who aren't doctors. You sort of have to, have to try to do it because you've got something, but it takes a lot of epistemological savvy to stretch into another field but know when you're on solid ground than when you're, um, you know, when you're uh, going a little bit beyond your canon and how to qualify it. And people don't have those skills, and it's not a shock that they don't. Yeah, it, it, it was revealed in a way that I don't think we've ever seen it before the extent to which those epistemic skills just don't exist in the culture, and culture-wide. And even the critics who c were criticizing them were doing a poor job of, uh, yeah. of criticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to pick up on the thread from about 9-11, rule of law, and what the way it will be often put is we have a distrust of our elites and of our leadership. But I, the more I think about it, at ARI, we thought when 9-11 happened that this is a really, really significant event, and our response to it, whether good or bad, is going to be really, really significant and play out over the decades to come. And it, it still shocks me now when I have students who they don't really know what 9-11 is. Like, I still think of it as, as it's just it happened a year or two ago is what it feels like to me. But for it shocks me when I'm talking to people and what exactly happened on 9-11. But I th think th that it, oh, it's really what broke any trust in our elites because yeah. it was the leadership on both sides that it's Islam, there's nothing to see here. There's, you can't understand this event really is what they said. And it so discredited them. And I think this is also in terms of thinking beyond America that this is also what's happened in Europe, and Europe has borne the brunt of it with the, with the uh, refugee crisis in ways we haven't. 
And that's played, and one's thinking about the political climate in Europe, a lot of it plays around this. And it, it really, that event that you have, that everybody can see what is going on, and your whole leadership tells you, no, there's nothing to see there, and the, what you think's happening in these countries is not happening. So, to me, that is the watershed in terms of breaking any trust. I mean, it's what starts that you're not going to have any trust in our leadership and institutions, because it was the media in regard to this too. But I'm interested in reactions to, to thinking now, 20 plus years, about 9-11 and its impact. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, the, the whole issue we talking about. But I think it's much more than that, because everything they did afterwards, they lied about, they faked, they pretended, and it goes on to this day. So, the, so one of the most important stories to come out in the media in the last 10 years, I think, was a, uh, a story by the Washington Post. They did a whole, they put it out as a book in the end, a whole thing about Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, they went and they interviewed all the generals and they, everybody involved, all the people in Afghanistan, the, the warlords, but also them. And basically what came out of it was that the American generals and the American politicians all knew it was a failure, all knew nothing was going to be achieved. They all publicly said they were winning and they publicly wanted more troops and they publicly wanted more money and they publicly wanted to continue. Kids were dying for zero reason. Everybody knew there were no reason and yet they were lying, lying, lying to the American people. And what's amazing about the story is nobody cared, right? It came out in the Washington Post, nobody cared because I think everybody knew it implicitly in a sense. They knew what happened was Iraq was, was ridiculous and the kids died for nothing. What happened in Afghanistan was an absurdity. And it all failed. It's also one big American failure. So they lied continuously, and they failed, and they've covered it up. Nobody talks about it. Nobody seems to care. But it's, I think it's changed people's sense of life. I think it's changed our attitude towards America and our attitude towards the, the so-called elites. I think it's a reflection, too, just of the loss of moral confidence, moral self-confidence mm -hmm. in the country and in individuals. I mean, it's a reflection of altruism. We sound like broken records when we bring up these basics, but it's, I think it's a reflection in one practical arena of, well, we can't stand up for ourselves. That's why we can't stand up and say, this is Islam, you know, this is a version of Islam and so on. Mm -hmm. like, we can't say what's what because we have to apologize for ourselves first and we can't, so. One of the things that 9-11 led to was the end of American exceptionalism as a kind of part of the American sense of life. The end of the idea that America is special and good. And people don't hold it anymore. And we've had two presidents, I think the first two, who are, that is, um, uh, Obama and Trump, Biden's such a nothing that he, he doesn't stand one way or the other on this, um, but who are not American exceptionalists, who don't think America is special with an important place in the world, important historically. Um, uh, the best thing by, uh, Obama could say about the Constitution is like, we try to get better, which he is nice, an but nothing. And yeah. he went around yeah. uh, apologizing. But then Trump is worse on this issue. He basically thinks America's no good. Um, the, uh, the, the likening of what we do to Putin uh, where you don't think we're killers too, we're just like them. It's a total, no one's any good, we're no good. Uh, I'm for us because it's on our team, but it's exactly the mentality of the tribal lone wolf that Ayn Rand describes in, uh, in the article 
uh, selfishness without a self is applied to the country. We're all a bunch of thugs and I hope our thugs are better than their thugs. Um, whether that's you know, marginally better or worse than someone who doesn't hope our thugs are better than their thugs is a question, but that that kind of mentality should be anywhere near major American politics. Like, you know, that there should be one senator who thinks anything like that. And there are senators. The, um, the, the squad, squad thinks like that on the, the leftist mm -hmm. side. But, um, but that there should be anyone, or they're actually in Congress, but whatever, uh, in high up in American politics who has that view and isn't hounded out is shocking. But that the, the, the side of American politics that presents itself as patriotic uh, has reduced its patriotism to a... Um, the surly disposition of a drunk who knows he's no good but won't quite say it um, is just frightening and awful. And I think it's a legacy of the failures after 9-11, accepting in effect that we can be attacked, we don't know why, we can't do anything about it, and when we try to do anything about it, we just make the matter worse and then hand the place that we invaded back over to the people who harbored the people who attacked us in the first place. That is not something someone with self-esteem can do. It's not something a nation with self-esteem can do. And the nation does not have self-esteem anymore. It doesn't think it's good as part of the culture in a way that we always did when I was a kid. And I remember feeling when the USS Cole was attacked, like, mm. how can we stand for this? And being outraged that Clinton did nothing about it. And I think other people felt that way. And he did try to send some missiles and pretend that he did something about it. But then that 9-11 could happen, and what we could do about it is send a bunch of us to be killed, uh, try to be civil servants for the Iraqis and the Afghanistan, uh, Afghanis, and then give Afghanistan back to the Taliban. I mean, that's pusillanimous in the extreme. And I think the country feels it. Let's put another axis onto this. So of two of the major things in the 21st century are 9-11 and the financial crisis. And it's, it's interesting, again, I, 10 years ago, I would not have predicted this, that discussion of economics in our political life is almost non-existent. So if you ask, like, what is the Democrat, what are, are the policies in regard to economics? I mean, Obamacare is like the grandest thing you could think of. But it, it's, um, yeah, we might want to send checks for people because they're out of job for COVID. And, and if you ask on the Republican side and the conservative side, do they have any interest in economic issues? Will, will they even talk? They won't do it if they come into power. But will they even talk about cutting spending and so on? It's, it, that is basically gone from our political scene, I think. And it's partly in, as a result of the financial crisis, but it's partly, I think, in terms of thinking of it as we're more tribal now. It takes a certain conceptual level to think about an economy and what should be happening and what, how it should be structured and are our taxes too high, is spending too much? And, so, and to think about that, it, it's, so that's another thing in terms of thinking about where we are compared to, say, at, at 2000 and uh, so 20. Uh, 20, I mean, near the year 2000, there was still discussion of economic mm -hmm. issues mm -hmm. in a way that it's been, I think, vacated or emptied from our political scene. So I'm interested reflections on that. I'll just say two quick things on that. One is, I think some of what you will get these days, largely from Republicans, is we want protectionism of various sorts, yeah. right? But again, that's a very superficial, short-term, unconceptual approach, right? Um, and it's I, for their guy, like they want right, to protect their guys. Right, their guys. We want yeah. to protect yeah. American, you know, 
Uh, and there was another thought that just flew by. Or so. their particular industries, yeah, too, like the right, farmer. Or, right, it, it, yes, right. Yes. Not that industry but, right. that votes the other way, yeah. and then the other side wants to protect it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but really, what's, um, what all of that reflects is a shift in Republican thinking away from a semblance of free markets, a respect for, at least verbal respect, not in action maybe, but verbal respect for capitalism, to a complete shift towards nationalism. So the whole way in which everything is framed today is uh, on the Republican side is through the prism and to some extent Democrats, because I think this has infected the Democratic Party as well, at least the what you call the moderate Democrats, yeah. is this prism of nationalism. So, for example, you read um, the, the National Conservatives just came out with a statement of principle, hmm. and, and what they will say is, oh, we want free markets, we want, we want free markets, as long as it doesn't hurt our nation's ability to, you know, national interests, uh, and they have a long list of industries, of course, that are required. Uh, so that's where the protectionism and the subsidies, they're fine with subsidies now. They're okay with national industries. They're okay with central planning, with industrial policy. And, but everything is now through this prism of what's good for the, quote, nation. That's what we will do. Whereas before, it was always, you know, we have some respect for free markets. We have some respect for freedom. We don't live up to it, but at least we give it lip service. That is all gone. And I do think, I think I'll call you right, that I think... The financial crisis will go down, I think, in a, similar to 9-11 as a, as a momentum event, not just that shifted the debate in the United States. I think it shifted the debate globally. And I think the failure here is that the financial crisis was blamed on capitalism. It was blamed on freedom. It was blamed on Wall Street and, and, and self-interest and greed. And nobody, nobody stood up against that. I mean, some of us did, but our voices were too small. And that, that, uh, that story about what happened is now universal. Everybody accepts it. It's global. Everybody in the world accepts it. So even countries that were moving towards more freedom, towards uh, greater economic freedom, have reversed course. Oh, but we don't want that because we saw the financial crisis. What happens there? Uh, it, the, the whole story about progress and what leads to success has shifted towards, uh, towards state uh, statism and towards planning and towards nationalism. Uh, so it'll turn out to be a, a major turning point in history. And together with 9-11, I think the two events that, will sh that have shaped, and now maybe COVID, uh, maybe these events are coming more often now, um, the, the shape kind of the, the, the future and people's attitudes towards freedom and liberty. It's relevant to our reacting to COVID by aping China. Yep. I mean, we, aped, we did right. what China did yep. light uh, rather than having an alternative approach. And I don't think we would have done that if, and all the other countries followed that, if, if our understanding of our place in the world was, and our way was better. Well, and economically, we're aping China. So, you know, across the board, China now is the model. The other thing I think is in the aftermath of uh, the 2008 and all, it's like, the egalitarianism mm -hmm. just kind of went on steroids and has now been so widely adopted. Some, you know, in some cases more openly and explicitly than others, but even the best of the Republicans or the right, it's like, but it's all understood just as a foregone conclusion. We have to minimize the differences and all. So that is really going to inhibit your honest conversation about economic issues, to get back to what you had originally raised here. Um, it's like, well, once we know, but the result has got to be as, as egalitarian as possible 
So good luck for honest conversation about capitalism or individual freedom. Um, and thinking of it from these events and these issues from the, the you can think of it, one way I think of it is it's the intersection of crises and bankruptcy. Um, the, so what also is interesting about, from a more political and specifically American, though not uniquely American, uh, what is interesting about the financial crisis from a political perspective is with Obamacare and the financial crisis, you got the rise of the Tea Party in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and my impression in reading about it and going to talking to people who were involved in the Tea Party, it was a real mixture of people. I met many people who it was the first time that they were politically active, that it was, yes, yeah, something's going really wrong with our country, and if I don't get involved, then it's, I, I can't blame everybody else if I don't get involved. Like, I've got to get politically involved. And there was certainly a segment, though I think it's a minority segment, but a segment that was really genuinely concerned like this, with the size and power of government it, and, and its sort of arbitrary nature. And if you remember in the financial crisis of what they let fail and what they bailed out, and what it, from a, if you think of just an average citizen's perspective, like this, it, it just, just looks like total government discretion and then the powers they had handed to the Treasury and the Fed. There was a real reaction, I think, on the part of some significant but minority segment of the American population that, that I need to get politically involved. But my reading of what has happened is, and this is the intersection of a crisis and bankruptcy, there was nobody to give them any semblance of good ideas about how to think about the financial crisis and what was happening. And some of those people were also in conjunction with 9-11. Like, things are not going well in Iraq. and so Something's really going wrong. There was nobody to give them any kind of positive ideas and a, and a positive way to proceed so that the better people, I think, left the Tea Party. Um, it's, they were politically active. They got involved for maybe a year or whatever. And there's nothing here, and I'm going to go back to my life and go live into it. And the people who were more animated, but they tended also often to be very religious, they stayed in politics. And in terms of thinking about sort of what the now is, they view as the base for the Republican Party, that that transformation of or weeding out of people, I think, was uh, is important in terms of thinking of where we are. But I'm interested perspectives on sort of the Tea Party, the financial crisis, and its aftermath. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the, the Tea Party was, you know, as healthy a response as one could expect in, in, the, in the culture that we had at the time. Uh, people responded emotionally. They responded against uh, what they saw as, as, as big government, as a government failure. I think in that respect, they were right. They, they had identified something true. Um, but very quickly, it, it, uh, it started devolving. It started being dominated by the religionists and the and the uh, uh, and the you know the the kind of the the, the nationalists. But it, there was still a lot of positivity until Obama won in 2012. And then when Obama won in 2012, it, they gave up on any kind of idealistic view of a solution. And I think that's what made Trump mm. possible. Mm. I think what happened is that 
The Tea Party kind of fizzled out uh, at some point when they lost in 2012. And the conclusion was, well, we can't defeat the left or we can't defeat the evils as we see them in the culture by these legitimate means, so we'll do anything. So we'll, you know, including line up with Trump in order to, in order to win. And that's the only way we can win is by playing the status game. And you see it today, Republicans admit it, admit it openly that they want the levers of power so that they can impose their will on us, whereas in the past, supposedly, they, they were willing to leave us free and educate us, right? So, so they, uh, and it's part of, I think it, it has to do with Roe, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade. Uh, you know, there, there was a certain segment among Republicans that believed, oh, we need to convince people not to support abortion. And then at some point it was, no, we just need, we ju just need to force them not to support abortion. And it's not the last we've heard of this. The campaign now is going to be to outlaw abortion nationally. In one way or another, that's the campaign that's going to, because they want to use the levers of power to impose their morality, their religion on all of us. And they will, and this has emboldened them and they will not stop. But it started with the Tea Party. The, the, the failure of the Tea Party, I think, emboldened that wing of the, that part of the Republican mentality. Well, one question is, what would it have looked like for there to be better voices giving better answers to the Tea Party crowd, the better people in it who wanted. I mean, Yaron was there talking at these things, and he said really good things. I've heard some of those talks, and other people did too. What was, why, why weren't we the thing that could supply the lack? What more would we have needed? Maybe we just needed two Yarons, you know. Um, but uh, I, but it's, um, I think part of what we need is um, a level of detail and ability to articulate and apply these ideas to a range of issues, uh, concrete, different fields, that just requires more intellectuals. What, um, what you were able to do was attract a lot more people to the movement, get students in the OAC, things like that, uh, tear out some, um, peel off some of the best people from that movement, and maybe make some of the others a slight bit better. But to set a, a policy agenda that a movement can uh, go into politics with, I think we just need a lot bigger intellectual movement. Well, it also was a problem with the Tea Party inherently. I don't know how many of you were at the Tea Party uh, events, but the Tea Party was a, was a movement of older people. I mean, the average age was in the 60s. And it, you're only going to have so much impact. Mm. And, and this is the frustration with older people. And I'm sorry. I'm one of you, so <laughs> don't. I mean, um, it's when you, when you don't. When you do that last push, let's say you're in your 50s or 60s or mm -hmm. 70s and you're pushing and it fails, you give up and you resort now to anything goes. We're willing to accept anything because we've, we've tried our whole life and we haven't succeeded. And I think that's a large extent. If you see the Trump movement, it is an older movement. It is, and, and if the Tea Party had been, like most revolutions, a movement of youth, I think you could have had a more of an impact. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and then of course you need more people, right? So part of the, part of the reason we couldn't do it, there's just not enough of us, not enough people doing enough in a variety of different fields, but just it's, it's uh, I've, you know, I just made up a number where we need a thousand objectivist intellectuals, but it's just a made up number. But the idea is we need a lot and, 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 and numbers do matter. They do count when you're trying to change a culture. Uh, and you know, that's the, the, the positive is that we're working towards that, right? Okay, so I've brought up a number of issues, a number of the major things in the last 
20 years. Uh, there's a more I could bring up. Uh, unfortunately, most are depressing, I think. Uh, Not like these ray of sunshine topics? So in terms of positives that you see, and let's take it, at least let's start off with the, the, the world of business and that America is still the leader, at least particularly in the high tech world, is still the leader and that this filters out both in terms of a sense of America's identity and about a sense of entrepreneurship. It also still attracts people. I mean, the, the, one of the, the, the really depressing facts about our anti-immigration policies today is the amount of people that would flow into our tech industries into Silicon Valley and now it's spreading to, to states that have better policies and better taxes and so on than California. The, the, we could be still attracting from around the world the brightest minds, particularly if they were science, tech, if we were open to it and if, if our immigration policies were, yeah, please come, we'd love to have you here. So th that, so both in terms of a positive, but the immigration issue I think is important in terms of part of the renewing of the American sense of life I think has been immigration because particularly when it's immigration that you're attracting the ambitious, bright, often oppressed people from around the world and here's a haven for you and then you can make your own way. Um, so, so that, just the world of business and then the issue of immigration impact on it in terms of thinking about America today. And it's, so I, I agree with you, Greg, that the American exceptionalism is gone and if you ask an American to articulate what it is about America that makes it good, you don't get very much, if anything. But there is still, at a more sense of life level, there is still, I think, rightly seen as America as a place for entrepreneurs. And so the impact of that in terms of thinking of where we are as a political culture, but more broadly in terms of the culture. Well, I'll say, I think there's a sense in which people don't think of it explicitly in these terms, but America is a place where you can be selfish. Right? I mean, I think that's what a lot of immigrants want. It's like, I want to have a good life. So in a sense, I'm encouraged by people who simply don't pay all that much attention to politics. They might know what's going on, but they're focused on their lives. They're focused on what they want and their values. And whether it's immigrants doing that and coming, as so many of them more conspicuously are, or just native longtime Americans who are doing that, that's actually what gives me hope. That is, the selfishness in people, whatever they say, whatever churches they go to and so on, right, the actual selfishness that drives them to do the often really great things they're doing. And it doesn't have to be great, it can just be you know, some good thing that we all benefit from. That's what gives me hope. And I have to say, um, a lot of this is among the younger people. Mm -hmm. Not just the younger, I don't mean to discount older people, but you know, Keith Lockich the other night at the gala was asked something about the future or something like that. And he spoke of you know, his students at the OAC or the ARU. And I have to say, my students at the university who have nothing to do with objectivism or anything, you can turn them on just to thinking, thinking, genuinely using their minds to think rationally about things. A lot of them find that very empowering, believe it or not. They, <laughs> like, they get that the mind matters. And they start thinking more systematic, and they start seeing connections that you would. And 
So it's individuals who give me hope, uh, ones that are selfish in their gut. I, li I, like, your pe I like your people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think two of the most uh, negative uh, things that are going on in the world right now is one is the immigration issue, which I think is a, is a, is a crucial issue. And both political parties are against immigration. People, people deceive themselves in thinking Democrats are pro-immigration, but they're not. The unions won't allow them to be. So neither party is pro-immigration. Um, but the dearth of immigration right now, and we're seeing labor shortages, we're seeing the, the economic consequences, but I think more importantly are the cultural consequences. We're not replenishing with that energy, that entrepreneurship, that, 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 that positive view of America which foreigners have, which Americans have lost to, 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 to a large extent. You know, when Tucker Carlson says the great things about America, the two things that define America, that make America the greatest country on earth is the scenery and our love of God. Those are the two, I mean, that's, scenery. this is, yeah, the scenery. He does a whole segment on this. Oh, okay. It's, a, you know, as if, as if Russia is not, I'm sure, has beautiful scenery. And certainly China, I've been to China. China is gorgeous, right? And that, that's going to make what America, America. Um, so that's one. The second is related to corp, uh, corporate culture. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I view business as, as the one saving grace of this country and, it's, it's, uh, and, and of the spirit of Americans. And it's where young people learn about reality and profit. And I talked about this in my optimism talk four years ago. And one of the saddest things to be happening right now, I think, is the politicization of corporate culture. Whether it's uh, the woke phenomena, whether it's the ESG phenomena, whether, or, or on the other side, whether it's, it's, it's uh, companies having to take a political stand in order to, you know, to meet politicians' approval, both left and right. It, it really is, uh, I think that is one of the most horrific things going on, and one of the things that should be fought the most um, is, is to, to keep politics out of, to the extent that we can, out of the culture of business. Uh, because that is, once American business is gone, there's nothing left uh, of, of, I think, what America really is. It's the last bastion of that individualism, mm -hmm. that striving for happiness and success. So we've been going on for about 45 minutes. I'm going to open it up to questions from our live audience in a moment. But is there anything, either something you want to say or some topic you want to bring up before we turn to questions? Well, there's one we haven't brought up, um, which is wokeism, or whatever you want to call it, particularly the kind of um, ideolog ideology around um, race grievance or um, grievances to do with being trans or not, whatever one calls that, uh, sexual identity, I suppose. Um, and the kind of level of the discussion about that, the kind of um, cancel mobs for people whose views are um, not a current, and I think that's the way to think about it. Like, it's a view that, whether it's right or wrong, everybody thought was fine five years ago, but now if someone holds it, you know, um, think about J.K. Rowling or something like that, it's seen by a certain... Um, uh, category of people is beyond the pale, and just what's going on with that aspect of the culture. Um, I don't know how much more to say about that than just raising it. It's another thing that I think people are right to be worried about. I'm a little less worried about it because I think there, most people don't have time for it. Most people reject it, and I think it's kind of hit its peak and is on the descending now but um, it's still doing a lot of harm, so. It's doing a lot of harm, even if people aren't, if a lot of people are tuned out from it, 
oh, but it is doing its harm in the corporate world, certainly, in terms of, oh, no, they, too, have to have their statements and the policies to back up the wokeism. We've seen it. I will say, it, it, at the university, the last two years, precipitous sort of decline in anti-woke, or just the uh, abundant embrace, the enthusiastic embrace of the diversity, equity, inclusion kind of thing, and just the assumptions that we have to begin meetings by declaring that this is really land taken from this tribe or that tribe, and so on. Like, that's very alarming. And it, so in a related, somewhat related vein, I have real concerns about the you know, free, respect for freedom of speech and the mm -hmm. decline of that in recent years, um, just as another thing we might explore. But I do think we should. Yeah, and what you're stressing that it, that's what I find very disturbing is that how much it has seeped into corporate culture and how quickly mm -hmm. it has done mm -hmm. that. And the it reminds me of 9/11 in that it's it's like open censorship that people mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. No, what you're saying, it, like it can't be right that what you're saying and the way you're saying it and so on, but we can't talk about it. And if I have any kind of view that says, well, like, isn't something in the Middle East, isn't there something disturbing in the phenomenon and the stats about how many people support bin Laden and so on? It's no, you can't go there. Mm -hmm. And that, to, just to an average person, and that it seems like our universities are pushing, that you can't go there and you're not supposed to think and you're supposed to just toe the line, that is it in terms of eroding somebody's sense of life just to live in that environment is to it, it it's soul crushing and it doesn't just well i mean it doesn't just uh hurt your sense of life honesty it just hurts your sense of honesty when everybody around you is faking all the time and the sense that's what we're supposed to do fake i guess oh and that's it, the way to live and this brings us back to your point originally on card that it all started 9-11 it really did I mean this idea of self-censorship the idea of of, of of real protests on campuses over, over speech yeah, we, we had the, a number. The, the cartoons oh, uh, the Danish cartoons the, the that all started and and it seemed to it seemed to subside at some point and now it's exploded now you can't the, 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 there's not, not just one thing you can't say there are a million things you can say, and, and, and cancel culture is, is, in that sense, all over the place. And when people feel uncomfortable speaking, they feel like they can't say certain things, and even that they can't think certain things, they still, in a sense, think them, right? They still, something's going on here, something's wrong with this. But insofar as they try somewhat to comply with it, what they do is they don't think about it explicitly, clearly, articulately, mm -hmm and they build up a reservoir of resentment, yeah. um, which ends up expressing itself in the form of a lashing out. Yeah. And a lashing out that's not thoughtful and articulate and not at the, necessarily the right people, or, and that's not endorsing the right views of the ones that are prescribed, but uh, just, in effect, um, ends up endorsing the caricature of those views that are made. You know, you, you wouldn't think this unless you hated all brown people or whatever are you and then you get some people who are like well if that's it then I do you know whatever the whatever the view is you get the kind of coarse caricature view comes to prominence because people are trying to suppress anything that anybody associates with that in their own thinking and it, I think it's that's the biggest cultural problem with it. it's part of what gives rise to the conspiracies yes that it, it's, exactly. it's yeah mm -hmm. that if you can't get an open discussion mm -hmm. and a real answer to these questions that you're pushing people towards here's a pseudo explanation yep. for things. Yep. Um, 
People need to understand. They need an explanation. And when the explanations dry up and nobody's providing anything rational, uh, then they will make something up. Because that's what, you know, it's what religion feeds off of, the biggest conspiracy theory ever, right? It's, it's they need an understanding of the world. And if, if, they, if they're not getting a rational one, then they'll get an irrational one. But they will adopt something. What I want to say on the more positive light and why I think we're past peak on this particular cycle of this, this comes in, in waves, this kind of you know, irrationality, and why there's um, some hope on this particular one for the future, is I think there are a growing number of pretty good intellectuals on this issue who are courageous, thoughtful, penetrating in their analysis, uh, and, and don't reflexively adopt whatever party line seems to be uh, opposed to the censoriousness. And, um, and in particular on race issues, I think there are more and more good people who are getting a following. I think uh, John McWhorter is fantastic. I think Glenn Lowry is um, fantastic. Coleman Hughes, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams. Um, and, and there are other people. But, um, but particularly with respect to the woke phenomenon, I think that group is um, I will second really that. I feel like yeah. as of about maybe six or eight months ago, it just seemed like I was starting to see more voices, good voices, resist the wokeism, just like speak out and being a little bit more courageous. And I mean, just as we spoke of the bad behavior emboldening more bad behavior, I think some of that gives some more courage to more people to like say, no, wait a minute, we got to rethink some of these. And I think they're breaking through. I'd also put Barry yeah. Weiss in this yeah. category. Yeah, yeah. And notice that when Barry Weiss left the Times, she wasn't driven out of the Times, she left the Times. I think mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. had good reasons for leaving. And but they felt compelled to basically hire John McWhorter to write a column, right? Like, so the, the, the kind of leftist institutions, which in some sense are captured by Twitter woke mobs, also know that they can't go all the way with that. They need to uh, have some of these voices. And I think they're making a difference, and I think they're going to cause this intensity of that phenomenon to roll back somewhat. It's not going to be gone, but it'll, I don't think this is the wave of it that's going to kill us. So well, you saw not. it recently in the Washington Post where uh, the, uh, the woman who instigated the, 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 the right. whole brouhaha around the joke, I don't know if you remember the oh, yes, joke, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that caused everybody to, she was fired. And, and I'm not sure that would have happened six months earlier, but she was fired because of the Barry Weisses of the world making a big deal out of this and, and, and the Washington Post management, I think, just feeling humiliated. And, and realizing how ridiculous their stance had become. It's so nice that somebody c could still feel humiliated because yeah. these days you feel like the shamelessness is just. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's open it up for question. And I think we have a mic. Someone's going to be going around with the mic. Uh, yeah, you can start with. So uh, just to give a little background on myself, I come from a business background, so that's where my thinking is. And just. Uh, give a little optimism on corporations. <laughs> I've worked in international corporations and am very familiar with corporate setup in four different countries, including the US, and still by far the US is the easiest country to set up a corporation. So don't forget that. Aside from the ESG and the woke, it's still by far the easiest. So we're not there yet. <laughs> Another question is, and it's around your comments on the credibility of these politicians and even their experience and knowledge. 
It's shocking to me what kind of people can get in government because I've interviewed people, I've hired them often. And some of these people I would not hire on an entry level position. It's like, how do people vote for them? And from an objectivist opinion, like for example, we have a guy in our area that's still living in his parents' basement and he's 40 years old and he's popular. <laughs> you know, to get into office. And it's like, I don't understand. So I, from an objectivist perspective, um, what do you think about some base qualifications for somebody having to run for office? You know, they limit term limits. So how would that be different, you know? I, I, you know, it, it sounds appealing, but I, I, I think it's too late. It's, it's, it's not, that's not the issue, right? I, I think okay. Trump would have probably qualified. Uh, and if we could elect that's Trump, true. we could elect anybody. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, so, so it's the same with term limits. There's an appeal to it, but it's not the pivotal issue. It's not what'll, what'll change things. I used to, I used to go to DC, this is years ago, I used to go to D.C. Uh, as part of, part of the job at the Institute and, uh, and meet politicians, uh, congressmen, uh, senators, met quite a few senators. And the, the striking things were, was how unimpressed I was with every single one of them. I never met a politician I liked, I respected, I've never had, in, in person, never. They're just not, you know, uh, exceptional human beings at all. They're quite the opposite. I, th I think the way in the, the world government in which we live. has yeah. gone in recent years yeah. has just discouraged the better people from wanting to run for office, yeah. which just leaves it to a lot of not very good people. Now, there still are some honest people, intelligent people, informed people, and so on. So it's tr if, if they happen to be in your area, give them all the support you can, right? And sometimes that comes out in reaction, like the Tea Party reaction, or when Trump was elected. I know there were some, you know, uh, some people were, you know, so horrified by that, they thought, well, I'll run for the local school board or whatever it might be. And it's like, look for some of those who might be a little bit better. It's, a, it's an interesting problem, I think, that it's, you get virtuous circles and you get vicious circles. So it is, from my perspective, it's a real problem that I'd say every good person I know, if I ask them and some this has come up in conversation sometimes. Would you run for office? Would you go into politics? It's to a person, no. It's, the, it's corrupt, it, I, and I do not want to do it. But if no good person goes into politics, you, the whole field is left for people who are no good. And then it, when you say, well, look at what we have around us. And so I still think it is mostly too early for political action in the sense of running for office. It is not too early to start trying to build people who have a more understanding and knowledge of politics who would support better candidates. So part of what a grassroots would look like is something like the Trump phenomenon, but good, um, that people are starting to talk about it and say that, yeah, we, our politicians are really bad. They're unimpressive, like it's the nicest thing you could say about them, I think. They're corrupt, a lot of them. And, you can't have a country. I mean, a country can't survive if all we have in, is in our whole political arena, corrupt people. 
And you have to, that, like, that's a real issue that is important to think about. And the tendency and objectives, which I understand is just, oh, politics is way downstream. That's true in a sense, but in other senses, it's part of what you're trying to do as you're educating people is that they should think carefully about politics. And whenever you see, and once in a while it happens, a good candidate, really try to support them. Because it's a huge problem that no good person will go into politics. Let me just add, I do think, though, this is part of the reason why the judiciary is so important. Mm -hmm. That is, one of the major checks we have on corruption, uh, the corruption of uses of government power, is by a judiciary that would stand up. So if you're in one of those states where even the state uh, judges and so on are elected, that's something that I've become, in, like, pay a little bit more attention to um, because the courts are one other way of combating some of that decay. It's also, if you're thinking about politics, you really have to think about what positive change in politics would look like what preserving the status quo would look like and what, what it would look like concretely for it to be devolving or moving in a bad direction. And I, I say this because people will say sometimes like um, about some candidate, people said it a lot about Trump, other people said it about Bush. You could imagine someone saying it about a Democrat. Um, you guys say don't vote for this guy. Well, he's no John Galt. We're not going to vote for anyone until there's John Galt. He's the best we can do. Um, about most of the people who that said, that's, I think, crazy. But if you project the attitude, what it is to be idealistic and a radical and interested in politics is that you don't vote for someone unless they're the ideal, then, um, of course, you're going to be, one, paralyzed about what to do in practical politics, and two, subject to that um, kind of criticism. What you have to think about is, yeah, we have a system, we have a, a political culture now that has a lot wrong with it as judged by the ideal. But that has some things good about it. Just think concretely, like we're not Venezuela, we're not, you know, there are a lot of places that we're better than. And you have to be aware of like, what is the difference between us and them? What things would be movements towards us becoming more like those countries? And what things would be movements away from it? And there's a lot of disagreement you could have in that. But, I mean, I was... Um, very strongly against voting for Trump in both of his elections and for voting for his opponents who were awful in every way, but precisely because I thought Trump was a major step toward just becoming Venezuela. And I think we've gone quite a distance towards becoming Venezuela under his leadership. And yes, he's better on fossil fuels, but Maduro wants to drill for oil too. Um, so it's, I might be wrong about that, but the point is you have to be thinking about like what would change for the better or worse look like in the concrete, what elections don't matter, and which ones do because something's changing. And often the ones that do are primaries rather than generals or um, elections where somebody's an up-and-comer and it's not yet national office, but, you know, this will establish them on the stage and to be looking for that. And I don't, you know, not an expert at all in that, but it's something that we need people doing and, and kind of surveying the political landscape for that. And we just need more thought about that. Even if some of the thought is wrong, that's the kind of topic that needs mm -hmm. to be discussed. Other questions? Yep. Great. Thank you very much for this talk. It was really uh, inspiring and um, thought-provoking. Um, one of the things that I heard that occurred to me as you were talking about all of these disparate uh, cultural events was the no one's talking about principles and the principles, they don't name the principles and they don't know how to use principles to analyze events. And that's 
what seemed to be kind of an integrating theme among all of the different topics that you were discussing. And that led me to, you know, think about Alex Epstein, who is, you know, coming out of the Ayn Rand Institute and um, how, how that's, what, how he's been very effective is he names the principles that he's using to analyze a topic. And that led me to thinking about how exciting it is with the Ayn Rand University coming up. And so what I'm wondering is how do you see the possibilities of influencing positively the culture with what the Ayn Rand University will do and what kind of numbers do you see that starting to happen with? What's that impact going to look like? Ronnie's I'll trying to get you to be optimistic before tomorrow. <laughs> I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> it's part of my talk tomorrow. I'll I'm be optimistic gonna... now. Yeah, <laughs> to be optimistic now. Uh, no, I mean, I had thought of Alex Epstein earlier as well when you were talking about we need people in policy area and we need more of them. Mm -hmm. We need more people in the energy area and in other areas. But certainly, I think, an, an encouraging area where objectivists, many of whom were trained at the OAC, education early education, elementary and so on education. And you've got a number of objectivist influenced intellectuals running schools and, and school related things, right? At a time when largely due to COVID, more and more Americans than ever are aware our schooling system, you know, fill in the blank. Um, it's, it's atrocious and so, so more people are looking for alternatives. So I'm hopeful there, I think that, you know, in terms of educating people who would be the kinds of people who might then go on to the university or might not go to Ayn Rand University but have better lives as a result of getting reason and independent thinking in there and value orientation. So that's an area that gives me encouragement. Let me say one, two thoughts on that just to support what Tara is saying mm -hmm. on education. Um, I think everyone here knows about higher ground education, the largest chain of Montessori schools in the world now. and. I'm, uh, my son goes to one of the schools and I'm on a board for them and some of their, their, uh, their um, uh, people are speaking here. But that's not the only company in education people know about Lisa Van Dam's school. Um, but there's also, I just want to plug them because they're maybe less well known by this crowd, Google Mystery Science. That was a company started by two objectivists, one of them a former teacher at uh, one of Peter Laporte's schools, um, that um, uh, had a tremendous reach in elementary science education and part of what they were doing is trying to get better thinking methods mm -hmm. in how science is taught. Mm -hmm. I say past tense because they sold the company for you know quite a good sum uh, but it's still these lessons are being lessons and they're working on a next act that I think will be uh, really big too. So education is a space where it's not just that we, there's one company where some of them are doing mm -hmm. things. There's a lot of uh, brain power in that field in multiple organizations and having networking effects with other non-objectivist groups in the education space. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of promising stuff there. And then one other thing you mentioned, Alex, um, the, the concept in Alex's new book of a knowledge system, the idea of how knowledge filters through a culture uh, from specialists to other people, I think just want to plug that as a, a, va a valuable insight and thing to think about in thinking about what it is that trust has been lost in. And uh, whether Alex, you know, that's an area where there needs to be more thought. I think Alex has advanced the ball a bit in it. Um, and, you know, it's something we should be all thinking about. Uh, yes. Uh, we just saw a wonderful talk on romantic fiction by Lisa Van Dam. Uh, if anyone missed it, that it was wonderful, I'd recommend it. But uh, 
it made me think, what is the antithesis of romantic fiction? And uh, the way I see it, that would be uh, horror stories. Uh, in particular, the kind of horror stories that uh, invoke a feeling of helplessness in the face of unstoppable evil. Um, can you talk about America's obsession with horror and how it can be a reflection of the attitudes that people have? I, I can't, because I don't, I, I've probably watched one or two horror movies yeah. in my life. I don't, I, if you think of the antithesis of a romantic culture, it's, I think of it as a culture without values. And yeah. that is, unfortunately, I think we're closer to that than we've ever been in America. This is part of what it means for American exceptionalism to be dying, that we, if you ask, who are known cultural figures today that are not like pop artists? It's hard to name anyone. Anyone in literature, like is there even someone taking take music, like a Leonard Bernstein, who, who's known now that, that people would recognize and see this? Can you think of it in any of the arts? Can you think of it in literature? Can you think of, and or just more broadly, are there any figures who are known as, like this is a respected cultural voice that we would be interested in the take that they have on some event or some issue. I find it less and less, it's part of that we're tribal, and so, so there are in some particular tribe, a Tucker Carson will have, but it's not like the other side thinks that, um, yeah, he's intelligent. It has something like it's an interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. I've wa I've been watching just out of for various reasons some Martin Luther King interviews in the 60s, and that I mean he's facing a lot of opposition, but he is given space to talk, and people are listening to what he, they might not agree, but they're listening to what he said. Is our culture anything like that today? I think the answer is no, and that part of it is it's just a loss of values, and that's the antithesis. A romantic soul is a valuing soul, it take, and particularly takes moral values seriously. But this is part of what we've been talking about, in fact, that the, in the last 20 years, the uh, one way of looking at the decline of the elites uh, and the attack on elites, on gatekeepers, on institutions, is to th think, and rightly, unfortunately, in many cases, that there's something fraudulent about their position. And it hasn't been replaced by other values, it's just now we have an absence of values. So I think of it that, in terms of what romanticism is about, I don't think about it, like the contrast is horror stories or something like that. Well, I'd add yeah. one other thing to the contrast, though. It's, if someone is driven by values, there are positive things they're passionate about, they're interested in those things, they light up about those things. Um, and a culture that's driven by values. There's things people resonate about, they're excited about, there, there's people come together over these positive things. A culture that's not has two features, and a person that's not has two features. Think of Jim Taggart in Atlas Shrugged. In particular, think of, um, uh, well, I don't want to give the chapter, but the, the, he's passive, nothing excites him, he's going through the motions, he has sex with someone who doesn't know why he doesn't care about her. But then when there's something to lash out at, suddenly he becomes animated. Where he comes to life is when there's something to attack. And otherwise he's listless and dull. And doesn't that seem a lot like our culture? 
um, whatever, whatever side of it you're on, like the, the, what are the literary tastes of the people, or, and what are the, the positive social justice goals of the people who snap at J.K. Rowling on Twitter? It's hard to say something about trans. There's nothing that, that they're really excited about it about trans people, something they're pro, but as soon as someone steps out of line or says the wrong thing, they're really excited about dumping on her. Right? Well, what do you guys like? Well, we don't know, but we know we hate this. And likewise, if you look at, you know, what do um, uh, people on the right today like, extol, want? What do they build up? What's their positive view of America? We don't know, but we know it's, you know, to hell with AOC and uh, teaching some, you know, trans thing in school or whatever thing they get animated about. And insofar as there are heroes to either side, the heroes are avatars of lashing out and grievance which notably, like, King was not, right. right? And neither were other leaders of successful causes for uh, bringing rights, uh, respect to downtrodden people. Yeah, j just quickly to your question, I, I would, I don't think a genre is going to be the opposite of a, um, a, a, in a sense, an aesthetic movement, right? So you could, you could make a romantic horror movie. Right? So you, you could have heroes who make choices and who fight for their values, and, and the, the thing they're fighting is horrific, right? It's a monster. Um, and you can make a naturalistic horror movie, and you can make just a, you know, everybody's, everybody's pathetic and everybody dies. So it, the genre itself does not dictate the story within it. Now, I don't like horror for a variety of reasons, but I, don't, it's, I can imagine a romantic horror movie, and I think they're awesome. Hitchcock, possibly. What's that? Some Hitchcock, possibly, in this past. Some Hitchcock, uh, you know, if you consider Aliens, the second mm. one, a horror movie or science, fi science fiction horror, I think it's definitely a romantic movie, uh, Aliens, with uh, the second Sigourney movie, Weaver movie. Um, and it's pretty scary. <laughs> so, yeah. in light of um, what I hear my dad often call the epistemological crisis, um, I wanted to know what your thoughts are, especially, I guess, in relation to, like, this new woke culture, especially in, like, the younger people of America who are encouraged not to think on their own, of, like, you will get attacked if you think any differently. And I wanted to know if there's a way to combat that. Essentially, what I'm saying is if they don't believe in using reason, by what means will I use to convince them? Well, I don't think you have to convince them. It's, it's not about convincing them. And, and partially, look, I think the, the, the thing about woke culture, particularly in its cultural manifestations, it's less so within institutions, is that the best, the best thing to do about it is to stand up to it. So I think woke will go away when people stand up to it. I mean, one of the reasons I've become an admirer of J.K. Rowling, beyond the fact that she wrote Harry Potter, which is a, source, a, a reason to admire her, is the fact that she doesn't give in to these people. She, now, she's wealthy, and she can't really be canceled in that sense, and she's famous, but she keeps on talking. She keeps on standing up to them. She keeps on, and, and she's admirable in, 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 in that sense. And I think if people just do that, they, uh, they model an alternative. They model what can be done. More people stand up, because a lot of these woke crowds are just doing it because it's tribal, right? They, 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 haven't, they haven't thought about it. They, you know, it's my friend does it. Why not? Let's join in. It'll be fun to go and attack X, Y, Z. And suddenly they, they see somebody standing up to them. I think that could inspire and, and cause, and cause a, a shift. Also, I, I think... Go ahead, Tara. I was going to say, I agree with that. And I would also say, I think even short of the open 
I resist, I say no. It's, you can just model being rational. Yeah. And for instance, in a college classroom, as, as you know, a few of us work, um, let them know, and you don't have to say this out loud, but let them know by the kinds of views that you entertain or even raise yourself, that certain things can be discussed, right? Because they get the, it's like, oh, oh, you're allowed to say that. I mean, just, you know, give them permission in a sense, whether you say so explicitly or by what you do day after day, that yeah, these things are on the table, they're not all foregone conclusions as to what we must think and may not think. So give, try to do what you can to kind of give young people permission to, oh, think the unthinkable. Yeah, like that's okay. Like, okay, what's wrong with it? So another, I suppose another tactic is you just, you keep questioning the views, oh, why should we think that? Even though that's the thing that everybody thinks these days. Okay, why, why, why? And, they, you know, and they'll see themselves, honestly, even if quietly, oh yeah, maybe I don't have the greatest reasons for that, or they don't have the greatest reasons, those confident, hip, woke people. Yeah, two things I'd like to add to that. I very much agree with Terry, your perspective on it. it. One is, it's better if you could do that not from a place of defiance, but from a place of naturalness. Mm -hmm. um, there's a line um, I didn't quote in my talk yesterday, but I was reading some of the things I remember wrote about parenting um, in context for it, about um, the attitude of the two children in the valley. Mm -hmm. And it was, if they encountered malevolence, they'd reject it, not as evil, but as stupid. And I think that's the, you know, there's one thing to stand up to somebody and you horrible person, here I am, bravely. That's dumb, what the, you know, like why would you think that? I mean, um, to really try to internalize that certain attitude, they might be wrong or evil, but they're silly, they're not to be taken seriously. And not to define yourself as a, a, a champion, an enemy, a fighter against this great beast, but someone who's, you know, thinking reasonably and not gonna let some pipsqueak, you know, uh, intimidate them out of it, um, so that you're not up in hydrogen against this great fight and, and it's consuming too much of you, but you're, I'm trying to figure out what's true and I'm gonna consider this view if it might be true, I don't know, maybe it's wrong. Um, and uh, to trying to, to inhabit and, and find things that help restore and feed in you that mindset of thinking is normal, natural, right, and, um, you know, most people will, I think, respond well to that. And then the other is it's not just about being rational about matters of, of straightforward facts and considering different views, but also part of what has to be role modeled that's part of that um, is, um, is having values, caring about things, thinking what's good and awesome and exciting and interesting in the world. And, uh, and, um, being someone who, who makes it clear that that matters to you. And Ankar's often, you've often referred to, I don't know how often, but you have in a way that impacted me, um, mentioned Washington's talking about um, raising a standard that the wise and honest can repair to. And I think when one does that, when one um, is manifestly thoughtful and valuing, one attracts people around one who are like that. And there are a lot of people, I think, who are looking for that on college campuses and elsewhere who you'll find the friend group that you want and you'll have the future today if you, you know, work for it in that way. Yes, so we have plenty of more questions, but unfortunately we won't be able to get to them, at least in this edition of New Ideal Live. We're at the time, it's 
so thank you for joining. Thank you for joining live today and for our online people, thank you. Um, and we'll have another edition of New Idea Live next Wednesday. I'm not sure what the topic is, but you can find that on our website and in emails we send out. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Uh,